loving us in that way. Um, if that's something that interests you in, in finding out more information about that, getting plugged into that ministry, um, you can use one of the Connect cards that's in the seat back around you. Put your name on it. Circle uh, hospitality. And so today um, we're going to see, again, two men who are going to walk into a relationship with Jesus. And so to help us kind of keep on course, we're going to talk about what it means to be found by Jesus, what it means to be finding Jesus, and to be seen by Jesus and seeing Jesus. So if you're a note taker, those are kind of your anchor points for this morning. I'm going to pray, and then we will jump into John 1. So please bow your heads and uh, pray with me. Heavenly Father, we know you are good all the time. You take care of us. You provide for us. You watch over us. You love us. You are there for us and with us. And even when we feel lost and overwhelmed, you are always with us. God, we thank you for being who you are. Lord, I pray that we would be a people who remember regularly and not forget or lose sight or get distracted by this world and just remember and rest in and dwell in who you are. God, as we open your word this morning, as we talk about finding and seeing and and searching for you and being found by you, God, ultimately that's what it's about. It's about you and you making yourself known to us. So God, we, we come with thankful hearts, overflowing with thankfulness for who you are, for what you have done, what you are doing, what you're going to do. Lord, as I open your word and we all open your word to study this morning, um, you have something for us. You have a reason for us to be in this this morning. You have something you want to teach and speak to each one of us. So God, give us ears to hear that. Give us hearts to believe it. Give it mind, Give us minds to comprehend it. Give us hands and feet to respond to it. Lord, as I preach, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be glorifying to you. We pray these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. We're going to be in John 1, starting in verse 43, and we're going to go to the end of the chapter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So let's talk about being found by Jesus. Being found by Jesus. So it says the next day, we open up in verse 43, it says the next day. This is day four of John's multiple days in his opening chapter, right? Day one, the authorities come to John questioning, who are you? Are you the guy? Are you the Messiah? And John says, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not Elijah. I'm not the prophet. I am the voice. 
Day two, John calls Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and he baptizes Jesus. Day three, John again calls Jesus the Lamb of God. Two of John's followers go and follow Jesus. One of them, Andrew, after following Jesus and spending the night talking with him, comes to the conclusion this is the Messiah, goes to get his brother Simon, who Jesus calls uh, Cephas, Peter. And so here we are in day four. And it says, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. We don't have a direct word, a direct instruction as to why Jesus decided to go to Galilee. It would seem, based on this section of scripture, it would seem like he went to Galilee to meet Philip. Now, Galilee is a large section. It's not one specific town. It is a large area. He went into Galilee looking to meet, I think, looking to meet Philip. Maybe there are other reasons, but we don't know that. But what we do know is that Jesus doesn't just go wandering, right? The Gospels, especially John's Gospel, there's a point and a reason for everything that is taking place. John's not getting paid by the word. He's not just trying to fill space on a page. Everything has a point to it. So Jesus went for a specific reason. And it says, Jesus found Philip. Verse 43, the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. This idea, Jesus found Philip, it's the same word that we saw last week with Andrew going to find Simon. Andrew found his brother. He went intentionally looking, seeking, and trying to intentionally find him. Seeking and finding. This is a theme that we have already seen a couple of times in John, and it's again another one of those seeds John's planting. Pay attention to this, seeking and finding, looking, searching. These are things that are going to come back over and over throughout this gospel. And so Jesus and Philip have a short conversation once Jesus finds Philip. It is super short. It's two words. Follow me. This is the invitation not to play a game of follow the leader, but an invitation to be a student, to be a disciple. In that culture at that time, this is an understood phrase. This was not, this was not a weird interaction. He understood, Andrew understood, or Philip, sorry, understood what Jesus was asking him. There's no confusion about this, no ambiguity as to what Jesus is saying to Philip. The interesting part of this is just the context and who is actually saying it. Because at that time, when you were looking, when you wanted to become a rabbi, when you wanted to become a Pharisee, you wanted to go study under a rabbi, you went and approached the rabbi. You had to kind of apply. You had to seek out a rabbi you wanted to study under and basically convince him that you were worthy of his time. Here's all the reasons I would make a good student. Can you please take me on? Can I follow you? Can I learn from you? Can I be your student, your mentee, your disciple? Unsurprisingly, this way of doing things led to, eventually led to corruption and chaos because there are reports and records of people bribing their way into studying under certain um, less than moral rabbis. But the point here is that students had to go find their teacher. They had to go basically, like I said, apply and candidate for with their teacher. Here, Jesus, as we will see continuously throughout the gospel, takes that idea and he subverts it and he flips it on his head. That's the entire point of what we are reading in this gospel, right? The reality that God came to us. Emmanuel, God was with, is with us. God stepped into humanity. God showed up. God made himself available. It is God who creates us who starts the relationship with humans in Genesis. It's God who calls Abraham. It's God who makes a people for himself. It's God who calls us to himself. Jesus will even say later on in John 15, we'll get there in like four years, you did not choose me, but I chose you. I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your, your fruit should abide. Over and over throughout history, 
the Israelites not only don't choose God, but actually actively rebelled and chose anything but God, and yet he continuously calls them back to himself. And the same can be said for you and me. Over and over, we continuously choose our way over God's way, and he continuously calls us back to himself. You did not choose me, but I chose you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. I chose you so you could see what love is and so that you might love one another. He goes on in Ephesians, in Ephesians 1, Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Not only did God choose you, but he chose you before the foundation of the world. When it was just God, when it was just Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, before anything, he knew you and he called you to himself. Jesus found Philip and said to him, follow me. And Philip did. We get a little detail there in verse 44 that Philip was from the same town of Bethsaida that Andrew and Peter are from. That name Bethsaida means house of the fishermen. It's a small fishing town. Not a whole lot else going on. Everyone that grows up there and lives there are fishermen. So it is pretty safe to assume that Philip, Andrew, and Peter all knew each other long before Jesus showed up. We've seen now four different men meet Jesus and become his followers. Right? We have Andrew uh, and whoever else was in there. I think it was John, but it was the two two of them. And then you have Simon, and now we have Philip. None of them question Jesus. Once they meet him, they don't question. They don't argue. They heard from him. They meet him, they have a moment with him, and they followed him. But before you think that every person who meets Jesus immediately and unquestioningly becomes his followers, we are introduced to Nathaniel. There's a sharp contrast here in verse 45. Philip was found by Jesus, but Nathaniel is going to go and end up going to go finding Jesus. Finding Jesus. But before Nathanael can go find Jesus, it says Philip found Nathanael in verse 45. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Don't miss the repetition. Verse 41, Andrew first found his brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah. Verse 43, Jesus found Philip. Verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him. Five times in four verses, the idea of finding or being found. Repetition in the Bible is important. Repetition in the Bible is important. When something is repeated, it's, oh, that's important. Repetition in close proximity to itself is the Bible's way of saying, hey, pay attention to this. Pay attention to this idea of finding, of seeking, of being found, because I'm trying to communicate something to you. Seeking, looking, searching, but all of it comes back to seeking, looking, and searching with Jesus at the core as the one either doing it or being the object of it. And so we have Philip, and he goes and finds Nathaniel. Much like what happened with Andrew and when Andrew met Jesus, he responds by going and finding Simon. So Philip meets Jesus and responds by finding Nathaniel. And he even says a similar thing that Andrew said to Peter. Andrew said, we found the Messiah. Philip said, we found the one who Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote about. And see the confidence of which they speak. See the confidence that Philip speaks. We found him. 
Not we hope we found him or we think we found him or we might have found him. He seems like he could be the guy. No, it's a clear, full-throated embrace and belief that Jesus is the one. He says he's the one that Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote about. This is the basis of the entire gospel, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament. We've talked about this verse over and over. You thought because I didn't do it at the beginning, I was going to forget about it. John 20, verse 31. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. Christ means Messiah, set apart one, promised one. That he is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. All of the prophets, all of the law, all of it points back to Jesus. Places like Deuteronomy 18. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. That's Moses speaking about one who is going to come greater than himself that God was going to send. That's Jesus. Numbers 21.6, Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many of the people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. That serpent on the pole, look up, look up and see. Look up at one exalted and see and be saved. Isaiah Isaiah 7 verse 14 Therefore the Lord shall himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Micah 5.2 But you, O Bethlehem Epaphrath, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. Over and over the Old Testament points us to Jesus, points us to this Messiah, gives us these reminders, these glimpses of the promised one, of the one who's coming. Nathaniel says he's the one we've read about, the one we've studied in the scriptures. We found him. We found him. But wait a minute, Philip. Who found who? Verse 45, Philip goes to Nathaniel and it says, we have found him. But we already read in verse 43 that it was Jesus who found Philip. So Philip, like most of the time with the disciples, Philip, you're kind of right. You're kind of close. Right? When you tell someone, I, f- I got a new job, right? I found a new job. I was searching for one and I found a new job. Yes, it's true. You put yourself out there, you applied. But first, that company that hired you had to post the job and make themselves available to be found, right? Philip kind of found Jesus, but really, as we've already read, it's Jesus who found Philip. Charles Spurgeon on this passage wrote, and he said, verse 43 is kind of like taking the Holy Spirit's point of view. It's Jesus who does the the first steps. It's Jesus who finds Philip. And verse 45 is kind of Philip's point of view. Early on, he doesn't quite understand all that's going on, and he just says, we found him. He was there in Galilee, and, and we found him. See, the beauty of the gospel is that God finds us. That's what scripture has told us over and over again. Places like Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. 
And again, I don't think Philip's trying to boast here that he did anything, but the point is our relationship with Jesus is not about us doing the work to try and win, earn, or find our way, but rather it is Jesus. It is God revealing himself to us, making himself known, making himself available to be found. When we play hide-and-seek in my house, um, you know, sometimes the kids will have me go hide, and I'll be honest, I'm a much better hider than they are. And so sometimes I'm hiding, and I hear them walking around looking for me, and they, they then start calling out, and they say, can you give us a hint? Can you tell us where you are? And so I'll make a noise, I'll make a sound to give them an idea as to where I am. And then they show up, ah, we found you. Yeah, you did. Did they really find me, or did I make myself known and make myself available to be found? God found you. He made a way for you so that he could be found. Jesus finds Philip so that Philip could find Jesus, and then he goes to find Nathaniel so that he can find Jesus. We are saved from hell to be a blessing to others. We get saved, we know God is good, we know he is for us, and we should have a desire in us to have others come to see that same truth. And so Philip goes and he finds Nathaniel. Nathaniel, he's here. The one the law pointed us to, the one the prophets wrote about. Everything we've known since we were kids, everything we've known since our parents were kids, since grandparents, our entire generations, our entire people forever have been waiting for this moment. Everything has been pointing in time to this because he's here, finally. Well, who is it? It's Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. You can practically hear the scoff of disbelief in Nathaniel in verse 46 when he says, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nazareth, really? It's a little town. It's a town of nothing and nobodies. There are no historical records of any kind regarding Nazareth prior to the first century. It literally does not exist up until a certain point in history. And even at this point when Jesus is alive, it's a small village of no real importance. The things that we do know about that place at that time, it was a place of mixed race people. It was a place of mixed religions. There was idolatry there. There was different things going on. Really nothing good. And for the Israelites, they were all about purity, right? They could trace their lineage all the way back to Abraham. They were all about having a pure bloodline. Nothing about Nazareth was pure. They were all about being 100%, and nothing that came from Nazareth was 100%. What do you mean, Nazareth? Nobody's come out of that town. Nobody, no one of any kind of repute, no one of any kind of authority, no kind of celebrity, nobody and nothing good has, is it even possible? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Look at the difference between Philip and Nathaniel. Philip, no questions, no arguments, no wavering. Jesus calls him and he responds. While Nathaniel lets his prejudice and his bias shine through. But what's the difference between them? Nathaniel hasn't met Jesus yet. And that's exactly Philip's response. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? How does Philip respond? Come and see. He doesn't get into an argument with Nathaniel. 
He doesn't debate. He isn't going to try and blow them away with facts and figures. He doesn't try and take the moral high ground. He doesn't even dispute Nathaniel's premise that nothing good can come out of Nazareth. Instead, Philip invites Nathaniel, come and see. Let's go find out together. Let's go take a look. He actually uses Jesus' words, right? Jesus said the same thing to Andrew and the other disciple. They were following him. He said, what are you seeking? Rabbi, where are you staying? Come and see. This is the perfect response from Philip. And it's a perfect response for us when we want others to hear about Jesus. When we want others to know Jesus, especially the skeptic. For the person looking for a reason to hate and doubt and ignore. Just come and see. That's the unifying thing about all of these different guys that we've read about in this chapter. Whether it was Andrew or John or Peter or Philip or Nathaniel. All of their stories, they're a little bit different in different ways. They all have a little bit different interactions. They all have different backgrounds. They have different baggage. They come with different preconceived notions. Everybody's story is a little different. But all of their roads end up at the same place, at the feet of Jesus. Bring them to Jesus. For the lost and the weary and the hopeless and the doubter and the haters, bring them to Jesus. Let him take care of it. Bring them to Jesus and let him defend himself. He doesn't need you to do that for him. Let him explain himself. Don't make it more complicated than it needs to be. The mission of Christian fellowship is becoming Christ-like and proclaiming Christ. It's about fulfilling the Great Commission, that we are to make disciples, make followers of Jesus. That's what Christians are called to do. That's what the church is called to do. But it doesn't mean you have to be the smartest person in the room with every answer to every question. It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean you need to be formally trained or be a Christian for X amount of years before you can start sharing your faith and telling people about Jesus. No, bring them to Jesus. He will handle the work. It's not you or me who is going to save anyone. It's not you or me who is going to change anyone's heart. Think about your own story. Think about it. If you are a Christian, think about when you received Christ, when you got saved. I, I would assume at some point along the way, somebody was involved in that. Somebody told you something. A parent, a, a pastor, a, a youth leader, somebody had some involvement in that. Some person in your life expressed the gospel to you, and, and in your head you might tie some of that memory to them. But that person didn't save you. That person didn't reveal the spiritual truth of your own depravity apart from Christ to you. They didn't convict you of your sin and forgive you of those sins and cover you in their grace and their mercy. God did those things. He might have used another person as he used Andrew, as he used Philip, as he used others, but ultimately it is God who did the work in you, just as it will be God who does the work in anyone he allows for you to be part of their story. It's not our job to save anyone. It is our job to bring people to Jesus and let God do the work that he has promised he will do. And while we're on the subject for the record, bring them to Jesus is not shorthand for bring them to church. It can include bring them to church. That's a great thing to do. But it doesn't mean I'm going to invite them to church and Pastor Tim can deal with them. Pastor Tim can have the conversations about the gospel. I'll let him handle it. He's the professional. Bring them to Jesus means bring them to know who God is. It means share your story. 
It means open up a Bible with them. It means letting them ask questions and answering the ones you don't, you know, and wrestling with them with the ones you don't know. It means helping them sift through the lies and the falsities of who society and the world wants to paint Jesus and Christianity to be so that those people can meet and know the actual real Jesus. So that they can know that the God of all existence made them. That they are not a random accident of the cosmos, but intentionally crafted and formed by God. Help them to know that God knows them. They are not alone, that they are seen and known by God, the God of all existence. And even though he knows all of their good and all of their bad, he loves them, who they are right now, and he loves them so much he sent his son to die for them. Help them to know that grace and mercy and justice and hope and life and rest and peace and fullness are offered to them by grace through faith in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's not an angry authoritarian trying to take away all the fun and punish us for every mistake. He is the God of love and grace and mercy. But it also means he's not a wishy-washy spiritual substitute teacher who's going to let you get away with everything and he doesn't care what rules you break as long as you just do your best. No, because he's also the God of justice and order and righteousness. He's not the accessory that the political parties can pull out of their bag of gimmicks and cliches for every couple of years when they're trying to pander for some votes. The kingdom of God is not of this world, and the king of kings is not subject to anyone's political agenda. As Paul writes, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Bring them to that Jesus so that they might know how good he is and what it feels like to be seen by him. To be seen by Jesus. Verse 47, it says, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael takes Philip up on his offer and goes to Jesus. An Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael You are a man who will be honest and direct. There are no lies, there are no tricks or half-truths when it comes to Nathaniel. We've said throughout this chapter, John writes in layers, right? You can read something, surface-level reading, and get an understanding and keep going through. But if you take a little bit of time, John's writing in layers. I think I know where he learned it from because Jesus sometimes speaks in layers. On the surface, Jesus is just saying a nice thing about Nathaniel, right? He's a man who carries himself well. He represents Israel. He is an Israelite. People can look to it and say, look at that quality man. He's honest. He's open. He's direct. What Jesus is saying here actually has a deeper meaning to it, a deeper meaning that I think Nathaniel understands immediately. I think the original readers understand immediately, and we can understand it, but we got to do a little bit of work. I'm going to go back to Genesis 28. You can stay where you're at in John. I'll come back, I promise. Um, But in Genesis, we're going to do a brief, real quick, brief history. 
God calls a man named Abraham. He says, Abraham, I want you to follow me. I want you to be with me. Trust me, and I will bless you. I will bless you with descendants. I will bless you with land. Your people will be a blessing to the world. He promises Abraham an heir, a descendant. Abraham's wife, Sarah, gives birth to a man named Isaac. Isaac marries a woman named Rebekah. She gives birth to two twin boys, Jacob and Esau. Jacob is known as quiet and cunning and even deceitful. He's a liar and a trickster. He takes advantage of his brother twice and his elderly blind father. He's not the most likable guy, the most likable character, the most likable person. But like everybody in the Bible, he is flawed. But that doesn't mean he is beyond redemption. Genesis 28 says in verse 10, Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth. And the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Abraham, the God of Abraham, your father, the God of Isaac. The land of which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, for I will never leave you until I have done what I have promised you. And Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Shortly after that happens, Jacob has the chance to reconcile with his brother Esau, who he had betrayed. And then shortly after that, he actually wrestles God. Old Testament, man, it's awesome. And after all of those things happen, you get to Genesis 35, and God speaks to Jacob, and he blesses Jacob, and he says, Jacob, you're no longer Jacob. Jacob was a liar. Jacob was a trickster. Jacob was out for just himself. You are somebody new. I have made you somebody new, and your new name is Israel. Israel will go on. He will have 12 sons who will grow up and take wives of their own and start families of their own, and those 12 families will become the 12 tribes of Israel, the nation of Israel. Jacob was changed. He, was allowed, he allowed God to do a work in his head and his heart and soul, and it changed him. He went from Jacob being one person to Israel being another one. His past was one way. He was one person, and then he walks into a true relationship with God, and he has changed completely. When Jesus addresses Nathaniel, when he addresses him in this way, he's saying, you're in Israel. You're a descendant of Israel, not Jacob. There's no deceit. There's no tricks. There's no lies within you. You are a son of Israel, not a son of Jacob. Now, he's not saying Nathaniel is perfect by any means, but that he is sincere in his character and person. 
And this statement from Jesus might strikes a chord with Nathaniel because verse 48, he says, how do you know me? What Jesus said about him, this reference to Jacob maturing into Israel hits home for Nathaniel. And remember, he showed up with his guard up, right? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? He showed up looking to be unimpressed. But now all of a sudden, he's thrown off a little bit. Verse 48, how do you know me? Jesus knows you, Nathaniel. Before Philip came to you when you were under the fig tree, what was he doing under the fig tree? We don't know. But again, it must have either been very recent or very important because Nathaniel responds to this statement. When you were under the fig tree, I saw you finding and seeing. I know you, Nathaniel. I have always known you. When you didn't know me, Nathaniel, I knew you. When you weren't thinking about me, Nathaniel, I was thinking about you. Before Jesus, before you knew Jesus, Jesus knew you. When you weren't thinking about Jesus, Jesus has been thinking about you. Just like what we said with Philip. Philip found Jesus because Jesus first found Philip. This is what we mean by being seen by Jesus. Nathaniel learned that Jesus knows us. It's the reality that David expresses in Psalm 139. Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You know me. And he's always known you. If you go to Psalm 139, 13, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Jesus knew Nathaniel. It's why he could say there's no deceit in you. He's an honest and trustworthy man. You know how I know? You know how I know that this is about you, Nathaniel? Because I made you this way. See, Jesus knows us. He knows you. He knows your strengths and your weaknesses. All that you are, all that you can be, all that you will be, you were made by him and for him. You are seen. He sees you in whatever season, whatever situation, wherever you might feel. If you are in a season where you feel stuck, or maybe you feel planted. Maybe you feel trapped. Or maybe you feel welcome and safe. Whether it's good or bad, whatever the case might be, wherever you are, God sees you. And you are who you are, where you are, when you are, because of God's divine judgment, planning, care, and control. He knows exactly who you are. He is not ignoring you. He has not forgotten you. He's with you. He sees you. He hears you. When Nathaniel hears Jesus' response, Nathaniel goes from being seen by Jesus to having the spiritual blinders removed and actually seeing Jesus for himself. He showed up on the defensive, but he has quickly learned that Philip was right. And he responds in verse 49 as he is now seeing Jesus. He says in verse 49, Rabbi, again, respect and adoration. You are the Son of God, the King of Israel. To be a son of somebody was to embody their characteristic. A wicked man would be known as a son of wickedness. Somebody who's often in trouble would be a son of affliction. I don't know if Nathaniel in that moment even knew what he was saying, if he understood just how wise he was speaking. I think he was more so using this phrase in a way of identifying Jesus as the Messiah, in, in agreeing with what Philip told him. Regardless of how much he understood of what he was saying, don't miss what happened. Nathaniel was skeptical. Philip didn't argue with him. 
He just brings Nathaniel to Jesus. Jesus does the work, and how quickly Nathaniel goes from skeptic to follower. And in being a follower, Jesus has a promise he shares for Nathaniel and for others. He promises you will see greater things than these. You think that was cool? But he just wait until you see the full greatness of God on earth. The signs and miracles you're going to witness will be much greater than this comment about a fig tree. And then Jesus takes it a step further in verse 51. John introduces here in verse 51 a signature phrase of his gospel. It's the double truly. Truly, truly. If you're a King James kind of person, it's verily, verily. It's amen, amen. That's the word we use. Usually when we say amen, we put it at the end of our prayers. It's a stamp of approval and agreement and closure to a prayer. John's the only gospel writer who does the double truly, and he does it 25 different times. It's a way of stating a truthful significance of what Jesus is about to say. Jesus is talking to Nathaniel here, but he's actually also speaking beyond Nathaniel. Because in verse 51, it says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened. Those two yous, I say to you and you will see, those are both plural yous. Those are y'all. This promise goes to Nathaniel, to the disciples, and to you and me. He's pointing us back to Genesis 28, to the passage I read, the, the dream and the ladder that Jacob had in that place, where he says, this place is the house of God. That's the word Bethel. It means house of God. Jacob had a vision of heaven and earth connected. The house of God where God is to be worshipped. Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise to Jacob. It's not about a specific place. And later Jesus is going to say as much. He's going to say it's not about a mountain. It's not about a building. But because I have arrived on earth, heaven has been opened. And the connection between God and humanity has arrived. D.A. Carson says Jesus is our access to God and God's communication with us. You want to know what God is like, you look to Jesus. You want to know how God feels about certain issues or certain people, you look to Jesus. Jesus is the heaven-sent approval and confirmation that a new way, a new connection and relationship and access will be made for us and, for us and by and through the Son of Man. Jesus' favorite personal identifier, referring to Daniel 7. When there will be one like a son of man who is comes and is given dominion and glory and a kingdom. Only Jesus isn't just like a son of man. He is the son of man. The one whose kingdom shall never be destroyed. He calls us to himself. He made a way for us and he promises us that through his life, death, burial, and resurrection, we receive new life, hope, access, and relationship with God that we were cut off from because of our sin. Jesus makes a promise. You're going to see amazing things. And truly, truly, verily, verily, amen and amen, the Son of Man will establish his kingdom by going to the cross and dying for our sins in our place that we might not suffer the wrath and punishment we so deserve because Christ did that for us in our place, on our behalf. As Paul writes in Philippians 2, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is why the key 
element, the key ingredient in the life changes of these men is found in meeting Jesus. Because it is Jesus who changes everything for us and in us, and it's all about him. This is Christ's work. It is his call. God, Christ chooses us. He sees us. He knows us. He invites us. It's him who softens our hearts. It's him who makes it possible. It's him who welcomes us in. It is Christ who forgives us and washes us clean by the blood that he spilled. As we close out chapter 1, I've I've said multiple times, John's planting seeds all over the place. Beginning with John the Baptist, Jesus is referred to in several different ways throughout this chapter. He's the Lamb of God in verse 29. He's the Son of God in verse 34. He's Rabbi in verse 38. He's Messiah in verse 41. He's Jesus of Nazareth in verse 45. He's the King of Israel in verse 49. And he's the Son of Man in verse 51. All of these are important to the role and function Jesus carries out for us in his life, death, burial, and resurrection. And we will see John basically take each one of these titles and prove the validity and importance of each of them as we walk through this book. All of them wrap up together to point us to John's thesis that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that we may believe and have life. Brothers and sisters, you were lost, but now are found. You might have been hidden, but now you are seen. Christ is inviting you this morning to find him yourself to see him with spiritual blinders removed and to come to know his goodness, mercy, and love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that when it was impossible for us to have a way, to make a way, you made the way. When it was impossible for us to do the work on our own, you did the work for us. Where it is impossible for us to win, earn, impress, you send us your son to die on a cross for us. God, it can be scary at times to fully realize and embrace the fact that we are seen and known by you. But when we can remember, when we can cling to the fact that you are good and holy and righteous, it doesn't feel so scary, it feels comforting. I thank you for being that comfort to us. God, whatever season we are in, good, bad, or otherwise, whatever questions, whatever skepticism we might hold on to. God, I pray that you would help us to remember who you are. To remember your control, your goodness, your righteousness, your steadfastness. God, give us eyes to see you clearer. Give us a desire to pursue you more, that we might know more of you, see more of you, and want to know more of you, and see more of you because of it.
God, thank you for choosing us. Thank you for sending your son. Thank you for making a way where there was no way. God, I pray this morning, this is a time of renewal and refreshment. As we realize that you are in control of all things at all times. And so that we can go out into the world, that we can be the lights of the world because you are with us and for us, directing us and guiding us and shaping us. God, we thank you for sending your son. We thank you for making a way where there was no way. We pray these things because of Jesus and in his name.